Take note of the questions on the, the screen this morning. We'll use those at the end, as, as you all know. I hope that you are uh, doing well um, this, this morning, and it's good to see you all here. We'll be starting uh, chapter 10 in, in just a few moments in the book of Ezra. So if you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 10. And we're coming to the end of our journey, Ezra and Soon, in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting, um, Lord willing, Nehemiah. So we'll be doing, continuing with this Ezra-Nehemiah together. I wanted to say uh, again uh, how much joy it was to sit under Anthony's preaching last week, as I'm sure it was a great blessing for you, as it was for, for me. Certainly the Lord is at hand in doing a great work amongst us. Do not lose sight of that. (laughs) Do not lose sight of the fact that 2020 was a tumultuous year and 2021 is turning into more of the same. That in such a year as 2020, God has done some of the greatest work in our midst. In our midst. And so don't discount that. Don't look beyond that as God continues to do some amazing things amongst us. Two weeks ago, we were in Ezra chapter 9, and we went through the whole chapter. In chapter 9, Ezra the man who had just led the second group of uh, exiles back into the land was going well. They just got back. People were being assigned. He was doing all the things that he was supposed to be doing. And then the sad reality confronted uh, confronted Ezra. And that is the people who had been living in the land previously had been living in sin. Had been living in sin. It wasn't everyone. Everyone wasn't living in sin, in this particular sin, but it was pretty widespread. It was widespread enough where it include the priests and the Levites and the chief officials and the leading men of Israel. In fact, the rest of chapter 10 this morning, verse 18 and onward, which we'll look at next week, is a long list of all of those who were in sin. The sin at hand was of intermarrying with other peoples of the land, which I'll make clear once again in a few minutes of what that sin is. Remember, they were not the only ones in the land. They didn't come back to an empty place, but they came back to a place where people from all of the world were dispossessed where they were from and put in to where Uh, where the Jews were from. There were people from all over the world and therefore bringing all of their cultures and their sin and their abominations to Israel. Israel had neglected God and His Word and therefore they they lived in gross misconduct and sin and would not repent. And the Lord did as He said He would do, and He removed them from the land. They lost everything. 
And here Israel, back in the land, tends to go right back into the same kind of sin that they were guilty of previously. But when Ezra hears about it, chapter 9, verse 1, he is utterly broken by the news. And what I mean by lamenting and broken by this sin before him, it was so appalling to him that he, was, he, he tore his robes, he, he pulled his hair and his beard out because he was appalled to the core that God's people would go back into such egregious sin before God. And when we hear Ezra's prayer in verses 6 through 15, it is one of the most profound and moving prayers in all of the Bible. It is such a great prayer of lament. It's a prayer of admission of corporate of sin and guilt before the Lord. It's a prayer of, of remembering the goodness of God and the blessings of God that He had on His people. It's a prayer of, of absolute dependence upon Him. And how such a forgetting people have forgotten God and forgotten His commands and have neglected His word once again. It's a prayer of remembering the deep need that they have as a people for God's grace and His mercy in order to be forgiven. That is Ezra's prayer. This is how Ezra re responded to sin. But how will the people? It's one thing for a leader and a few others to see clearly the sin of the people and then to recognize and to confess and turn away from the Lord. It's one thing for the leaders to do it, but what about the people? How will it go down for Ezra as he confronts them in their sin? Previously, it didn't go so well for Isaiah. It didn't go so well for Amos or Ezekiel or prophets. Will the people hear? Will they understand the gravity of their sin? Will they confess? And will they repent to the Lord? Let's look at Ezra chapter 10 and answer some of these questions that we have this morning. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and those whom tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose 
and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as it has been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonanan and the son of Elishahib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said, but the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain. We can't stand in the open, nor is it a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly trespassed in this matter. matter. Let our officials stand for the assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashiel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tigvah, opposed this. And Meshulam, the Sherebathai, and the Levites supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see His holy, inspired, and inerrant word for His glory and for our joy. Amen. This may seem, in Ezra chapter 10, like a bad story. It seems as if it is a depressing set of events. No one wants to walk through the mire of sin, whether it is our own or if it is others. No one wants to face its consequences. No one wants to face the, the separation that sin does between them and the Lord. No one wants to face its 
the consequences and the destruction of sin, of our relationship with the Lord and with the relationship with others. No one wants to deal with the pain or the hurt. No one wants to do that. It seems as if when sin is found out in our midst or in the midst of a church or anywhere else, it seems as if there is no hope, like a bad story, a story that's depressing. When we realize how sinful we truly are, we see how bad it really can be. That's not a good story. It's kind of depressing. It's a hard pill to swallow. But I want you to see this story, this passage this morning from a different light. Whenever there is sin, when God's people a church, or an individual sins, and there is a confession of that sin, and there is a repentance of that sin, then that situation, although may have begun in darkness, that is actually a story of glorious, wonderful grace. To see the mercy of God in the forgiveness of sin. In fact, in our lament of sin, there may be bitterness of tears and, and weeping because of our sin, but yet then mingled with that is still joy because we know the mercy and kindness and grace of our God to restore a sinner. That's what He does because it's a testimony of His glorious grace. And what we see this morning in chapter 10 is just that. We see God's grace and His mercy being brought about. In fact, it was His Word that was brought to them, that was given to them, that, that exposes their sin. And when it is clearly taught and proclaimed, it will expose the sin in the hearts of the people in each person. That is Ezra's purpose for his life, to proclaim the Word of God. It's why God raised him up in the position to have. That he wasn't only going to lead them out of exile from Babylon, but lead them out of the exile of their sin to proclaim the Word, to lead them out of sin, to proclaim it, to, to teach it, and to apply it. And that exposes the sin among the people. Ezra does not search this sin out. It is the officials that come and confess it to him. And when the Word is preached, and when it's studied, and when it's read, and when it's memorized, God shows us His holiness and He shows us our sin before Him, and then He shows us His grace. The Word of God breaks us by exposing our sin and our weakness. And as the two-edged sword cuts, 
It also drives us to the grace of God and the gospel to bring about the forgiveness of sin and the restoration to right relationship with him. That's what happened to the Israelites here. Under the teaching of God's word, they were convicted of their sin, their personal sin, their corporate sin, and it broke them. And it drove them to confess their sin and repent before the Lord, and that is God's mercy. Chapter 10 is the people's response to the preaching of the Word of God. I want you to understand that. And that is the Lord's kindness. And that is the Lord's love. And that is the Lord's mercy and grace to send His Word to His people and to call them back to Himself and then give them the eyes to see and the ears to hear, to confess and to repent of their sin. That is a work of God. Brothers and sisters, this passage this morning is showing us some very important things about the Christian life that we must never take lightly or for granted. And most importantly, we must never neglect. It sounds elementary to the experienced Christian. And to the young believer, the young Christian, this may seem unnecessary or tedious or uptight to talk about sin, to talk about confessing sin and the necessity to repent of that sin. It may seem so old-fashioned and intolerant to talk about sin these days, especially other people's sin. Many will say, we all sin, we all make mistakes, we all force fall short, but is it really that big of a deal? I tell you this morning from what we see in this passage from chapter 9 to chapter 10 is that sin is anything but not a big deal. Sin very much is a big deal. Ezra's response shows that it is not just that it's not a big deal. Look how the Levites and the priests respond and how the people respond. Sin is not downplayed. Sin is not trivialized. It is not intolerant for someone to stand up and to call the people to repentance. But I dare to say to you this morning that that is loving and that it is kind. What's intolerant and what is evil is to reject the notion that the people need to repent. It's easy to downplay sin in our own hearts and the necessity of confession and repentance. It's easy to ignore or, or worse in our churches to neglect. And so what we need to do this morning is to look closely at this passage and to see the biblical godly pattern of how we are to respond to sin. It's the pattern of restoration and renewal.
looking back at our passage, we see that as Ezra is praying and he's making confession, he's weeping and he's laying prostrate down before the Lord in the, in the house of God. And around them gathers a great assembly of, of people, of men, women, and, and children. And they join him in lamenting and weeping bitterly over this sin. Of course, we know verse 1 is describing Ezra from chapter 9. It's describing Ezra from, from chapter 9. And there he is, he is praying and expressing the great sorrow over the sin of the people. He's physically distraught over the great sin of the people. Ezra was broken over the great sin of the people. But then what is just astonishing here in this verse is that others joined him in the lament. Men, women, and children. This verse is astounding. It's astonishing. Because when was the last time you were part of a group of Christians who were publicly weeping because of sin? Their own sin. The sin of others. The sin of the church. The sin of their nation. We can easily gather people for dinner. We can easily gather people to celebrate good things, and we should, and to fellowship, but for public lament. And it was Ezra's sorrow in his prayer of lament that drew others in. And it spread through from chapter 9 into chapter 10. In verse 2, a man named Shechaniah, and we'll talk more about him in just a little bit, but Shechaniah joins him in this confession. He makes a powerful call to grieve over sin and then to confess and then to repent of that sin. In verse 9, after the three-day deadline, the two tribes of Judah and all those exiles that have returned to the land were to gather in Jerusalem in the square before the house of God, the temple that they had rebuilt years before, generations before, and they stood there in the pouring rain, physically trembling because of the, serious, the seriousness of the matter of their sin. They weren't trembling because they were scared of Ezra or because of some obligation to him, but because of the Lord. That their sin had been found out and that God is holy. The full weight of their guilt and shame was on them. And symbolically, as the cold rain soaked their clothing, they could feel the weight of their sin upon them. And they trembled before a holy God. Their helplessness before a holy and just God. You see, what is blatantly clear from chapter 9 into chapter 10 is the sorrow that the people of God express because of their sin. 
Well, what do I mean by sin? Sin is rejecting God's Sin is rejecting God's will. It's, it's following your own desires rather than the Lord's. Sin is loving and treasuring someone else or something else more than we do the Lord himself. From the first transgression in Genesis 3 to the very last sin that we might have committed even this morning. We are all guilty of this. We are all guilty. We have all sinned. We have all cast away God's will to, to fulfill our own desires and to treasure other things more than we treasure the Lord. We all have sinned, and we all have a sin problem because we still have existing in us a sin nature. If you are in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to those sins like we were previously. But we still have a sin nature. But most importantly, we must understand that when we sin, to whom we are sinning against, that we have sinned against the Lord. They had not namely sinned against Ezra or the temple or the other people in the land or even their family. But more importantly, they sinned against the Lord and they trembled. And they trembled. And that became clear not only to Ezra but to them. Their sin of intermarrying wasn't just a technicality. It wasn't just a sin of indifference. But it was a direct assault, an offense to the nature of God. They had intermarried with people of the land, meaning they had married foreign women and had become like the peoples of the land. They were no longer distinct but it had become like everyone else in their rituals and customs and morality and even their worship. That may sound, this particular sin may sound weird to us, but the Lord had specifically commanded of his people not to intermarry with other peoples of the land. It wasn't racism, it wasn't ethnicity that was the problem, but it had everything to do with holiness. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this. It says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to, your, their, to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, which they clearly did. And why? Is it because God hates these people? Because of where they're from? No. It says, For they will turn away your sons from following me. It'll turn them to serve other gods. It'll turn them to be living uh, 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 adulterous lifestyles of abominations before the Lord. They were to be a holy and separate people, but yet they participated in the abominations of the world, sinful acts and wickedness and false worship, and they got used to it. 
They didn't even know it. They couldn't even see it anymore. They've grown accustomed to these things. Uniting these cells in these marriages, they've become accustomed to these abominations. It's as if, and we see this unfortunately, it's as if someone who calls themselves a Christian and yet still endorses and supports the institutional destruction of image bearers and abortion. That's intermarrying itself with the world. And these intermarriages drew people away from God. So far away that they couldn't see who they were anymore. Until there was no distinction. It's about holiness. It draws them away from the Lord, but it's also, it disregarded the promises of God. The mixing of the people was a mixing of the sea. And we saw in the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman with the seed of the serpent. And that showed when they were intermarrying that, that they had no regard for the coming promise of God. The coming promise of the Messiah. And thus endangering the fulfillment of that promise. Here's what I first want you to see here then. Is that in their sin, they're exposed in their sin, that, that if you are a Christian like them, like us, that when the Word of God exposes our sin appropriately, proportionately, we should feel the deeply our sin, the grief of our sin, the sorrow of our sin, if we are indifferent toward our sin, then brother or sister, let me tell you, pray. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to show you passages like this from Ezra chapter 10. To know what it means to feel deeply your transgression. For me to know deeply what it is to transgress against our heavenly Father to know deeper the cost at which it cost Him to provide for us our forgiveness of sin. And when you do that, you will tremble. Pray that He would help you understand how unsatisfying and morally bankrupt that sin and idols are to us. Cultivate this year Godly sorrow for your sin. Spend time meditating on God's grace. Think about what you deserve for your sin. And then put it up against what God has given you. I think soon we will realize, you will realize, I will realize that we have no place to stand. But that our God, our Heavenly Father, is so kind. And if you're like me at all, 
And when you experience sorrow, sorrow for your sin, then it may feel like if you are stuck in the rain, weighed down and drenched. And when you are there, it's your hope in God. And there you will find it. He is our only hope from our sin and for the forgiveness of our sin. Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect and sinless life that we never could. And it's interesting. Jesus is called the man of sorrows. But Jesus wasn't sorrowful because of his sin. He had not sinned. The only sorrow that Jesus had was the sorrow for your sin and my sin. And on the cross, he bore those sins in his body. And he took our shame and our guilt. And therefore, then, if our sorrow is there for just, is just for a time, into great mercy and great grace. So cultivate godly sorrow for your sin. Weep over your sin. We, you may have to be on the floor for your sin. We may have to feel deeply the knot in the pit of our stomachs because we are guilty. But always turn to the hope of our forgiveness in Christ. Because for our sake, He made Him to be who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of Second Corinthians 5.21. If you don't have that memorized, it is time to put some ammo in your magazine. The second part of the pattern, first was godly sorrow, which is closely linked to godly sorrow, is godly confession. Sorrow over sin should always lead to the confession of sin. We confess again because we have hope. Amidst the sorrow in verse 2, again, this man, Shechaniah, broken because of this sin. And I believe Shechaniah is personally affected by this sin. I don't think Shechaniah committed this sin, but I believe from what we see later in chapter 10, Jehiel, his father, did. Jehiel is listed among those accused of marrying foreign wives down in verse 26. Who knows? Shechaniah's mother might have been one of those foreign women. Or maybe Shechaniah's mom, mother, was a Jew that his dad had to and forsook to marry this other woman. But Shechaniah is coming out on behalf of his parents. Think about how difficult this situation is. How deep these sinful roots have, have gone. 
not just in one family, but many families. And yet, nevertheless, Shechaniah comes forward and says, we have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make covenant with our God to put away these wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the command of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task that we are with you to be strong and do it. So what is Shechaniah doing? First, he's making confession. He confesses their sin. He gets it all out in the open. He verbalizes it to Ezra and in front of everyone else. I think that this is a, a, a much more appropriate use of the phrase, name it and claim it. He named the sin and he claimed it. It's ours. We have broken faith. We have married foreign women. You don't name and claim anything. <laughs> Good appropriate use of that phrase. Someone text Joel Steen or something. And then Ezra goes to the people. Verse 6 through 8, he gathers all the people together, even with the, the, the threat, right? The consequences. We're going to take everything you own. If you don't show up, you sinner. And they gather together, but what, for what purpose? And I love this about Ezra. You have, the time, you have the date. On December 19th, 458 B.C., Ezra calls the people and says to the people, verse 10, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord the God of your fathers, and do His will. He calls them out to confess their sins before the Lord. And you got to love verse 12. They answer back, it is so. Three short words, but in them encompasses all the guilt and shame before the Lord. It is their confession. The pattern of sinners before God is to confess their sins before God. Not to ignore them. Not to excuse them. Not to downplay them. Not to negotiate them. Or to trivialize them. Throughout the Bible, God's people, when confronted by the Scriptures, are led to confess their sins before God. One of the very first Bible verses that I ever memorized as a young Christian was 1 John 1.9. And this can be bullet number two in your magazine for this year. Because it is so clear on confession. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us and forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not a promise worth memorizing? That will quickly draw us in to confess our sin 
And the same hope of forgiveness in John 1, 9 is the same hope of forgiveness in Ezra. Did you happen to catch what Shekinah said? He said, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Well, what is the hope? The hope is in him. The hope is in God. The hope is in the character and nature of God that although we know that he is holy and we know he is just and we know he is righteous and we know he will judge us according to our sin, also he loves us and that he will forgive us of our sin. That hope is that God will forgive of their sin. That hope that he's talking about is pointing forward to the hope that we look back to and that is Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Their confession is not hopeless, but it is based upon the future grace of God's provision in the atonement of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Our hope in confessing our sins is not based upon the, the very own merit of you confessing your sin. But it's based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we know, we know that in him, on the cross, was completely satisfied the wrath of God and so that we can be forgiven of our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, righteous. And why? Because He gave His Son, who paid the penalty you could not pay. Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I remember being taught long ago, and it stuck with me, that the confession of sin, to confess, means that we agree with God about our sin. We agree with God that we are guilty before him. And that we're not, we're not surprising him when we confess our sin. There's, there's not anything new that we're bringing for, before him that he doesn't already know. We're not divulging new information. We're not taking him off guard or surprised that maybe Ezra was back in nine, chapter 9, verse 1. You know, being a parent, I think Christina and I, we, we know far more of the things our children do and even the disobedience, the things that they do and the things that they try to hide and cover up than sometimes we let on. We want them to come to their senses. We want them to learn from their sin. We want them to confess their sin. It kind of makes me wonder how much my parents knew all the things that I did. But the Lord knows it all. And when we confess, we are coming humbly in sorrow, only to agree with what the Lord already knows that we have been disobedient to his word, and that we have forsaken life in flourishing to believe in lies of sin. That there are other things that would be more satisfying 
than the Lord himself. Our confession is to be godly because our confession is to be God-word. We confess to the one we have transgressed against, the Lord. Unfortunately, we are able in our sinfulness to make our confession about sin, confession of sin about us, actually using it to boast in a self-righteousness or even boasting in our own sin. I've seen it done both ways. And yet we must practice consistent confession of our sin. Again, brothers and sisters, we're not going to surprise the Lord with our sin. But when we confess, we agree with Him, humbling ourselves before Him. We are disciplining ourselves in a sense. We are teaching ourselves about the character of God, that when we come to Him, we know that we are completely dependent upon His grace and upon His mercy. And without it, there would be no forgiveness of sin. We come as the sinner who came outside of the temple, who was beating his chest and crying out to the Lord that he is a sinner and does not deserve God's mercy. And yet we would leave like he left as the one who was justified. Because it's all based upon the merits of Christ. One way to help us in the confession of sin, in a very godly way, is to confess our sins appropriately to one another. I know that's awkward. I know that's weird. We don't want to be vulnerable. We certainly don't want anyone to think less of us. But if we, corporately, believe what we already confess about the gospel, and that is we all are in need of God's grace, then we would not also be surprised that we may be sitting next to another sinner. We're not surprised and should not be surprised that you or I are a sinner especially when we know how much we are a sinner ourselves, Confessing our sin to the Lord and to one another drags that sin out of the darkness and into the light. And if we are grace-driven, and if we are a gospel-centered culture, a gospel-centered people, then the confession of that sin would bring great light and life even despite standing in the rain. And third, I want you to know, this one's very important, and I think you know this one's coming, and that is after confession there is repentance. Again, Shechaniah calls the people to confess their sins, to put their hope in the Lord for the forgiveness of their sin, but then to make covenant with the Lord to put away all these wives and children according to the counsel of the Word of God. He's calling them to repentance. He wants them to make covenant that they will make full repentance of this sin, to completely turn away from their sin, no matter how hard it will be. You see, repentance is to be a complete separation with no provision at all uh, to harbor the idolatrous sin that we snuggle with. He says, basically, let our repentance be according to God's word. The biblical, godly marker of repentance is according to God's word. 
It's aligning our lives back to the Bible and with the Scripture. Part of confessing, confessing to one another is to help one another in that. And to understanding what it means to confess or, and to repent of those particular sins. In verse 11, Ezra tells the people to make confession to the Lord and to do His will. What's God's will? God's will is in His Word. The prescription for sin is the repentance in His Word. It's just whether or not we will believe it and we will take the prescription. Like all kinds of medicine that tastes bad going down. With this sin in particular, and with all the tentacles that were spreading out, with all the people and how widespread it was, their repentance, their prescription, wasn't going to be cough syrup, but it was going to be full-on chemotherapy, a long, painful process. Ezra says to them, separate yourselves from the people of the land and from their foreign wives. Radical repentance is required. We do not have all the details of this particular situation to know exactly what all that actually means. And it leaves, left me with a lot of questions like, how would these wives and children be supported? Or would they not be supported? Were they going to just divorce them? I mean, what does this look like? And we're not sure. But certainly they were to separate themselves completely from them and then to face the consequences of that separation. And just like us, when we repent, the marks of biblical repentance is the separating ourselves with sin, to cut ourselves off from sin. As Jesus said, we cut off the hand or pluck out the eye that causes us to sin, and we face the consequences of that. With every separation of sin, we're cutting off the root of sin. We are making a trade, though, for something far greater. Because we are getting the Lord. This may seem radical, but we may. But maybe we don't understand then what it really is. How dangerous and deadly sin really is. I mean, Jesus is saying, cut off the hand that causes you to sin. Better to have one hand in eternity than having both hands spending eternity in hell. Godly repentance cuts off what is trying to kill us. And the people of Ezra cut off the sin. They know they are losing, but they also know what they are gaining. They agree with God, and they come up with this plan of repentance. It was bad. It was so bad that 
It was going to take over, it took over three months to sort out everything. You see, gospel-centered repentance may be far more radical and long-term than we have ever considered. But it's in repentance that we are restored to the Lord and restored to each other. Are you harboring sin in your life? Or are you following through on your repentance the way that Ezra and Israel do here? Maybe your sin is one of the fear of man, hopelessness, or despair. You need to repent. And you should follow through on your repentance by memorizing Scripture to meditate on. Have you completely put away that sin? Or are you holding on to them? From laziness to lust, to anger, to covetousness, confess your sin and repent and take the steps of separating yourself from sin radically. As we close this morning, I want to tell you this little statement. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Meaning, not that it's okay to give in to sin, it's to do whatever you want and to live a licentious lifestyle knowing that God will forgive Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, may it never be. But it's okay in the sense that the Lord knew what he was getting into when he saved you. It's okay to be okay. Because God knows that I am a mess. And he knows that you may be a mess. He knows that Israel was a mess. But he still loves us. And he sent his word to confront them that brought about godly sorrow and the confession of sin and the repentance of sin. But here's the key. The point is, and Ezra 10 has a little short phrase I said, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Not when God has given us Confession and repentance. We stay there because God has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we walk together in humility, not pride. We grieve our sin. We grieve the sin of others, confess our sin, and we repent of our sin. May seem elementary, but brothers and sisters, the pattern of which the Bible tells us how we are to live is this pattern: is that when we sin, we confess our sins before God, and we repent before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word. Would you teach us? And always, Lord, what godly sorrow is, what godly confession is, and what godly repentance is. 
Lord, that we are always pursuing these things under the gospel, in the gospel, remembering Christ, remembering what He has done for us, and that is always driving us back to You. Lord, we humbly want to walk together in these things and in these matters, that we would walk in the light and not in darkness, that we would be salty and have great taste in such a tasteless world, that desires to continually unite themselves, Lord, with wicked things. Lord, this is a call to us and a warning to us to not join ourselves with the world. No matter how appealing it may be, no matter how good it may taste, no matter how good it may feel, or even how right it feels. But God, let us put those things away from us and separate. And that would you guard our hearts and our minds and our souls from evil, that we would not become like the world. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word and how it shepherds us and draws us in to repent of our sins. We come this morning confessing our sin to you, O God, that we may repent of our sin. We pray all these things in the hope of the gospel. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.